Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden and the Lord kicked them out of the Garden of Eden, he told them that their life was going to be different from that day forward. He told them that from that day forward, they are going to have to work. They are definitely going to have to do things that they have never done before. They are going to have to labor in such a way that they are going to sweat in order to survive. That they are going to have to be a lot more productive than they were in the Garden of Eden. They are going to have to produce a lot in order to keep up with the amount of consumption that they need to engage in in order to survive. They are going to need food. They're going to need some more clothing. They're going to need lots of things. And in order to live the life that they have in front of them, they are going to have to be productive, and their production has to be greater than their consumption. Now, sometimes this can be difficult. Sometimes we can't work as hard as we would like or as hard as we need. Sometimes our production is not quite as great as our consumption. And when that happens, we either do without or we find somebody else who will make up the difference. But what Adam and Eve experienced is no different than what anyone else experiences today. Today, we struggle with the same things. We have to consume. We have to eat. We need clothing. We need energy in order to provide ourselves with heat when we are cold or perhaps cool ourselves off when we are hot, things like that. We need to be productive in order to produce more than what we consume, or we're going to have to find somebody else to make up the difference, and the only way that they can do that is if they were able to produce more than what they consumed. And they have to be generous as well to give us what we have a need for. Now, this is a reality of life. This is what life is about for many people. It's all about working and enjoying the fruits of our labor getting through our life experiences in the best way that we can. But, you know, sometimes, because of circumstances in life, we are not able to get everything that we would like to have. Perhaps not even everything that we truly need. Life can be a big struggle. When the Lord Jesus was speaking to the people, when he was presenting his Sermon on the Mount, he talked about this. In Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 25, he said, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And Who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. 
Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat or what will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, of course, there are many things that he says here that are true and can easily be applied in our lives right now, and I certainly do appreciate that. But what I would like to explain right now is where this fits into the context of the Sermon on the Mount. You see, the context of the Sermon on the Mount was that Jesus was explaining that people needed to live in obedience to the Law of Moses. He taught the Law of Moses because the purpose of the Law of Moses was to drive an individual to the point of total despair so they would be ready to receive the free gift of eternal life according to the Gospel. They would realize that they have a need for forgiveness, that they have no hope of seeing the kingdom of heaven outside of God's grace and mercy, things like that. And this is actually a passage that relates to that theme very well, even though there are some things that he says here that are very practical in our lives right now. But in the context of the Sermon on the Mount and the struggles that we experience in life, what people tend to do is they tend to look to the Lord. They look to our God, their God, to help them to intervene in a divine way in their lives to sometimes make up the difference for when they are not able to be as productive as they need to be, or when there are circumstances that are beyond their control and they experience failure or loss in such a way that they were not prepared enough to deal with those unexpected situations. And so people call upon the Lord for divine intervention to help during these times. And Jesus gives some encouraging words concerning this. He says, don't worry about these things. He understands, your God understands, just seek his kingdom, seek his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And people look at this today and they feel encouraged by this. In the struggles that people have when they have a hard time being as productive as they need to be, they cannot produce as much as they need to consume, things like that. And so they turn to God and they say, okay, I will seek your kingdom and your righteousness and you're going to go ahead and make up for where I fall short. You'll take care of all these situations and circumstances. I just need to make sure that I don't worry about them, that I have faith in you. But then what happens when he doesn't deliver? What happens then? Well, then you call me. That's what happens a lot. People call me and they ask me what they're doing wrong. They ask me, how is it that they have failed to seek God and seek his righteousness? They must have failed. They had to have failed because they're losing their home and they're losing their family and they're unable to take care of themselves and they have no idea what they are going to eat, what they are going to drink or where they are going to get clothing in order to keep themselves warm when it's cold. Things like that. They call me and they ask me, what more should I do? I go to church every time the doors are open. I witness to everybody about the Lord Jesus. I do everything 
that I think he wants me to do, I am constantly in the Bible when I can be to try to find him. But it's not working. It's not happening. Sometimes I'll ask them, have you been wondering if you have the right God or not? And they say, yes, that's what I've been wondering, but I would never want to admit it because it sounds so embarrassing. And so I ask them, do you know people who totally reject the existence of God and they seem to be doing fine? And they say, yeah, I know people like that too. And so I'm wondering, maybe I should find out who their God is that they don't even believe exists. Maybe I'm worshiping the wrong God even. What is it that I'm doing wrong? And I have to explain to them that you might have been worshiping the wrong God, but their God is not necessarily the right one either. You might have been believing in a God who doesn't necessarily exist. You see, the point of Jesus saying this is, of course, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. And the context of the Sermon on the Mount was to teach Moses. And according to Moses, according to the law of Moses, if you were obedient to all of the commandments, if you will be obedient to all of the commandments, then... God will provide all of these things. That's where Jesus gets this from. He didn't say this in order to tell us today, or even those people back then, that this is your way out. This is your way out of those situations where you're not able to produce as much as you consume. That's not what he was saying. He says this in order to encourage people, again, to live in obedience to the law of Moses. Why? Because only then will a person discover that they can't do it. And one of the evidences that an individual can't do it is when we do not obtain all of the food that we want to eat, all of the drink that we want to drink, and all of the clothing that we want to have. When we fail to obtain everything we want, and I believe that there can be a situation in everyone's life where they can acknowledge and discover that they don't have everything that their heart might desire. When that happens and a person can reflect on themselves and see that they have failed, that they have not lived in obedience to the commandments of God. And so this is not a formula to get God to respond to you in some divine way, to intervene in your life, to provide you with anything that you have a need for. That's not what he was intending to say here. What he was intending to say here was that God is not going to provide everything for you. He's not going to do that. Again, in verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. But when they are not, they won't always be. That's what he's saying. This is the proof. This is the evidence to show you that you have failed, that you have failed to seek his kingdom. You have failed to seek his righteousness. And the reason why is because you are not as perfect as God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And these verses shortly after that are examples on how you could be as perfect as God. If God was living here today as a man, he would be as the Lord Jesus, because I believe Jesus was God manifested in the flesh, living among us as a man. And he would have no need to worry about any of these things because he was always seeking after God's kingdom, after his righteousness. 
And so whatever he would have a need for, that certainly would be provided. You should expect that. But for us, for us, this is a way of saying that we have failed. And why would he say that? Why would he encourage you to try and seek his kingdom and his righteousness so that you can get all of these things? Well, maybe because you would never bother seeking after his kingdom or his righteousness unless he gave you such an incentive. But in the end, he'll never have to deliver because you will never be as perfect as God. But you will be confronted with the reality that you are not. And so that perhaps you may, you may finally recognize that you have no hope outside of his grace and mercy. The Sermon on the Mount was given for this purpose. If you continue to read about the other things that the Lord Jesus said, he said many other things, but they were all coordinated with this same theme. For example, if you continue to read into Matthew chapter 7, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. Now, we know, according to the gospel, that the will of God is the description of the inheritance that he has given to us as a result of his death. I did some programs on the will of God, if you have not heard those yet. You can find them in my radio archive. Please do take the time to listen to them. We know that according to the New Covenant, when we receive His forgiveness and the restoration of life, we are in His will. But that's not what He's talking about here. What He's talking about here directly, that might be what He was saying indirectly, but directly He's talking about the will of the Father in the context of Moses that He wanted, He desired people to live in obedience to the commandments. So again, in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter. In verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And why would he say that they practice lawlessness? Because they are not as perfect as God. Because their righteousness has not exceeded that of the scribes and the Pharisees to the extent where they were successful in being obedient to Moses. With their failure, because of their failure to be obedient, because of that, they are declared to be lawless. They are declared to be lawbreakers. And Jesus will say, depart from me. So does he say this so that we would then find a way to be perfect as God and not be lawless? Perhaps we would find a way to live so that we would never sin? No. If I was to be held to the standard, if you were to be held to the standard, under no circumstances will you ever make it into heaven. Ever. The only way that we will ever be in the presence of God and his kingdom is through His grace and mercy, through what He accomplished, through the salvation that He provided to everyone, to anyone who would be willing to receive His grace and mercy. So if you continue to read throughout the Sermon on the Mount, I believe you will see that this theme is consistent. And I do want to mention that certainly there are many things that He can say to us while we study this today. 
that are outside of the intent of what he was saying to the people back then. But I want you to first consider what he was saying to the people back then. In order to help ensure that you do not abuse the word of God, you don't use it for a purpose that he did not intend. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you as you study the words that Jesus said back then. But I believe that this is a unique and personal experience between us and our God, and that we should hesitate on occasion to impose or impute meaning into the Sermon on the Mount and speak to others as if that was what Jesus was intending to say at that time, when perhaps he may not be. The last thing I would like to mention, just because I really appreciate it, is Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 29, because what he says here is so profound in comparison to what he started with when he began his message. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, it says, When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. To really appreciate this, it can be helpful to understand how the scribes and the Pharisees taught. They never taught on their own authority. They always taught on somebody else's authority. You probably notice that on occasion, speakers will quote someone else. They will say, well, some philosopher back in the 3rd century B.C., or this popular person who was popular or recognized in the Middle Ages, people will make quotations. They will quote people from the past. And when we do that, people tend to pay attention to us. They give us their attention because if this is something that someone said hundreds of years ago, perhaps thousands of years ago, and it has survived to this day, then it's probably important. It's probably valuable. We may have no interest in what that person is about to say, but when they quote somebody else, that has greater value to many people. It's a bias that people have. It's an unusual phenomenon that that people respond to quotations a lot more than original thoughts. And so when Jesus says this, he is referring to the scribes and the Pharisees who did teach in that way. They taught by quoting former rabbis. They taught by quoting the sophers of Babylon. They taught by quoting Moses. They taught by depending on someone else's authority. And by depending on somebody else's authority, they gave the impression that they had some authority that they had something worth saying. And so listen to somebody else first, and I'll tell you what they had to say. And now that I have your attention, I just want you to know that what I'm about to say is of similar caliber to what this other person said. And maybe they're right, or maybe you're going to be disappointed. But either way, this was the style. This was the technique. This was the way that the scribes and the Pharisees taught. But Jesus did not teach this way. He was very direct. He was very open. The Lord gave him a message, and so he gave the message that the Lord gave. And people will notice that. You know, when you quote me, or you quote some other Bible teacher, or you quote something that you read in a book or something, when you do that to people, when you say things like that to people, they know. They know that you are just simply saying something that somebody else said. And while that may have value, because they might not be very impressed with you personally, 
While that may have value, there is still a distinct difference between you depending on the words of someone else, the testimony of someone else, as opposed to your own testimony. That if you will tell people what the Lord has said to you, it will have different meaning, a different kind of meaning in the conversation that you have with individuals. It will have a greater impact. And perhaps they will be offended by that. I understand that. If you say the Lord has spoken to me and he said this and they don't agree with you, well then perhaps you might look a little odd to them. And so perhaps you ought to be sensitive about that and not necessarily invoke the name of God every time you have something to say. But you can still have confidence in communicating the truths that he has revealed without giving him credit, without saying that It was his word that was shared with you. Perhaps if you hide that just a little bit, then people will pay attention. And then if they want to know, where did you get that from? How did you know that? Where did you hear of such a thing? You can say, I was studying the scriptures. I was in prayer. I was going grocery shopping, whatever you were doing. And the Lord just spoke to you and said that to you. And you have been testing that ever since to see whether or not that is true. Things like that. There are ways to communicate with others with authority without having to depend on somebody else who they might respect, who they might think is impressive. I personally depend a lot on what the Lord has said to me. I enjoy telling people what he has said to me because I look forward to the day when I will see him in a new way, and I will know that I was a good steward of what he shared with me. But in addition to that, when there are things that I do not know, I have been known on occasion to quote other people, to teach like the scribes and the Pharisees. I have been known to do that, and I probably will do that on occasion in the future. But when I do that, I make it clear that it is not necessarily the word of God, that it may not be true, I make it clear. I want you to know that it's unusual for me to do that, though, and I enjoy not saying things as well. Sometimes people will ask me questions about things that the Lord just hasn't revealed anything to me about. And I will tell them, listen, I know that you want answers to these questions. I know that you want to know about this and that and everything else associated with it. But I'm going to be honest with you, and I'm going to tell you that the Lord has given me no special insights concerning this subject. There are other people who have said a lot about this subject. There are people today, and there will probably be people in the future who will say other things about the subject. But if the Lord has not revealed anything to me, then I'm not going to Speak to you as if he has, and I'm not going to always depend on what somebody else says and then say that as if that is going to be my authority in answering your question because I read this book or that book or listened to this person or that person. They may very well be telling the truth. They might have the divine knowledge of God concerning that situation, that circumstance, that question, those future events. They may very well be telling you exactly what God is going to do or what he sees in the circumstance or the situation that people are interested in. And if that's the case, then the person should speak with authority. 
but I personally feel very comfortable in not speaking in authority, in not saying things that I don't know anything about. And I personally believe that people should trust me a little bit more because of that. Because if there is something that I do know something about, and I do say it, and I do say it with conviction, then it's important, it's meaningful, it may very well be the Word of God. But when I say I don't know, you can trust me with regards to that. You can believe me when I say that, that I don't know. And I want you to believe me when I tell you I don't know. I don't want you to think that I'm keeping secrets from you or something like that. So when Jesus taught with authority and not as the Pharisees or the scribes, that's what it meant. It meant that he said what God told him. He did not say what his rabbi told him. So you also, you tell people what God tells you. You don't tell people what your pastor tells you, what your minister tells you, what I tell you. Unless the living God confirms to you in your heart, in your spirit, that what I say is true, it is to be held suspect. It is to be considered uncertain until the Lord tells you that it is. And then speak with authority. The authority that he gives you is the authority of the word that he has shared with you. That is your authority. The truth is your authority. Be confident about the living God, who he is, and what he has revealed to you. Be confident about the Sermon on the Mount, the message that Jesus gave. Understand why he said the things that he said, and be confident in telling people about the things that he said and the reasons why he said them. Do not be afraid. I understand that there will be very few people who you will ever encounter who will understand what I have just described. And the reason why is because of the assumption that people make. People assume that Jesus was teaching the way that a Christian should live, but I sincerely believe that he was teaching the way that an Israelite should live, that a Jew should live, so that they would reach the point of absolute despair, so that they could become a Christian. And once we are saved, once we are resurrected by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, then we live according to the new covenant and not the old. And that will be the beginning of the Christian life that he has provided for us. You've been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net